Now, the title of this morning's message up on the screen behind me is Helping Hands. We're going to be looking in 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, verses 6 through 18. I'm not going to read all of these verses. You're welcome to read them on your own. Uh, as I'm preaching, I'll be alluding to some of them. You're welcome to read them later today. I'm going to be preaching through this text. I don't normally preach through so many verses. But I did want to complete this chapter today because next Sunday I'll be out of the country in Honduras on the missions trip. Pastor John will be preaching. And then the Sunday after that, I would like to start a new, very small series, not in a book, but on a topic, and that is deacons. Now, some of you have been visiting our church, Meriden Hills, for some time, and you might have noticed a phenomenon. We don't have any deacons in our church. That, and in fact, some folks have asked me before they join, they say, now, before I join, I want to know, why don't you have deacons? I get it. It could be a red flag. It could be a pastor doesn't want deacons because the pastor wants to be in control of everything. You know, one man calling all the shots, one man making all the decisions. That's a dangerous place to worship in where one man's making all the decisions. So I understand the concern of some when they came here and did not see deacons. Multiple of you sitting in this room have asked me that question. My answer was, well, we've got people that are qualified but weren't really called or willing to be deacons, and folks who might want to be but weren't qualified to be them. That has been in the past. As I look now in our congregation, I do see both people that are qualified and I hope and believe called to the position of deacon. And I would like to have some deacons assigned by this church. As we see in Scripture, it is the church that assigns the deacons, not the pastor. I'd like to do that this year, in 2023, before the end of the year. I'm not going to say it's going to be done by the end of the summer. I'd like to take some time to preach through what it means to be a deacon and what that position entails. And then, as a church, prayerfully consider who we might assign to that position. By the way, what I've also told folks is, although we did not have deacons, we've got multiple trustees. I've got multiple pastoral staff members, Pastor John, Pastor Ethan. So it is not even without deacons. It is not one man making all the decisions. I've always had from the beginning, when I became pastor, I assigned immediately trustees and hired immediately assistant youth pastors and so on. And, and I've had that for the last six and a half years, and actually seven going on to this year. This will be seven this summer years that I've been pastor. have had multiple pastors and multiple trustees counseling me and being a part of the decisions that I've been making throughout the years. But we are definitely ready for deacons, and I'd like to start that this summer. So we're going to complete the book of Second Thessalonians that I've been preaching through for the last few months. We're going to complete that now today. Let's begin in verse 6. Now we command you, brethren, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you would draw yourselves from every brother that walketh disorderly and not... After the tradition which he received of us. Two words in that verse I want to clarify. The first one, disorderly. That word disorderly can actually include a lot of ideas. It basically means causing problems. It means doing things outside of the standard. Doing things outside of what is expected. It could be disorderly conduct in relationships. It could be disorderly conduct in conversation. This text is not referring to relationships or conversation. It's not referring to behavior patterns people jumping up on top of chairs and throwing things across the room. That's not what it's talking about. The word disorderly here is clarified by the text. Later in the text, we're told that some folks in the church were taking advantage of the generosity of the believers. Now, I'm going to give you a quick background, historical background. If you look at the first century church throughout the book of Acts, you will find that from the beginning, the church was a, a filter, you might say, of finances. Money was given to the apostles and the elders to be redistributed. 
In fact, you find in one occasion the Apostle Peter is counting money to be redistributed, and someone comes in and says, hey, I've got a bunch of property I want to donate. Here is all of the money I received from the property. And Peter says, really, is that all of it? Because, you know, I don't think you're telling the truth. And the guy says, oh, it's all of it. And he says, well, unfortunately, you just lied. And lying to the Holy Spirit's a pretty big deal, and now you're going to die. And the guy died. And then his wife came in and says, what happened to my husband? And he says, well, i got a question for you before I answer. That property you sold, did you give all the money? She says, yes, all of it. Peter says, well, you're going to join your husband. He's dead. And she died too. Now, you say, that's pretty harsh. Does that mean if we don't give all of our property, we're going to die? No, that was not the issue. In fact, Peter said to this man and his wife, he said, when you had the property, it was yours to do with whatever you wanted. You weren't required to give anything, let alone all of it. The issue was not that they sold their property and gave some money and held some back. The issue was they were trying to brag to the church about how righteous they were. They were probably telling everyone, oh, yeah, you gave that much? Well, you know, we gave this much. We, you know that property we had? We sold it all, and we gave it all to Peter. They're bragging about it, and they're trying to use the church to gain status about how much they gave, and the Holy Spirit wasn't having any of it. The Holy Spirit did not want the church to be a place where people gain status by how much they gave, which is why our giving is done in secret here at Meriden Hills. We do not give it publicly. In fact, we don't even normally take up an offering. We will do so today, and I'll tell you at the end of the service why, but normally we don't. It's given in secret, and it's not displayed for people to see. But at the early church, we find that people were giving, giving a lot. Why? For the purpose of redistribution. It breaks my heart to see where God's church has come to. So many churches take, and the givers don't ever know where it goes. You have no clue. Now, you know that it goes to lights. You know that it goes to the renting of the building. You know that some of it goes to crayons and scissors and glue because the kids have a kids club. And you know that some of it goes to the chairs and, and basic things. But you do the math and you're thinking, surely there has to be a whole lot more money available than what is needed to cover the expenses of a daily service or a, not even, a weekly service. I mean, come on. We use the church building one time a week. How is it that all of our money goes to electricity, chairs, and cleaning? Like, where's it all going? And you ask the pastor, and either they are evasive, or they say, you just got to trust me. And they say, oh, well, you know, that's, that's between me and the trustees, which happen to be the pastor's wife and the pastor's kids and the pastor's siblings, and it's all family. And it's very concerning. And I'm, I'm not talking about a church necessarily in this area. This is churches across the world that are doing this. The church has become a family business. And people are getting rich. <laughs> I don't mean spiritually rich. I mean they're actually getting rich. And they're getting rich off of the generosity of people who are naive. I think good intentions, I think Christians truly do want their money to be used for the kingdom of God, the glory of God. And so you assume if you give it to a church, it will be used for good. Unfortunately, that's being naive. Because not all churches are using money as a filter through back to God's kingdom. A lot of them, it comes and it stops and it's lost in the deep pockets of various individuals within the church. Whether directly through embezzlement or just straight out, the pastor keeps giving him and his family raises that you don't even know about. And if they were to give you a profit and a loss, you would be shocked and very upset to find out how much that pastor and his family have been keeping for themselves. That was not the case in Acts. In fact, you find in the book of Acts that the church, it seems, was having a daily, I don't know for certain, but it seems to me that is likely a daily 
you might say banquet for the members of that church. In Acts chapter 6 and verse 1, in those days when the number of the disciples were multiplied, there arose a murmuring of the Grecians against the Hebrews because their widows were neglected in the daily ministration. Now, what is that ministration? Again, that word ministration, like uh, the other word we saw where you know, it can mean various things, uh, is clarified for us in the next verses. Ministration, so are, are they being neglected in people praying over them, in, in cleaning their houses, mowing their lawns? Like what ministration is going on for these widows? Well, we're clarified later in verse 2 when the apostle Peter says, hey, it's not right that we leave the studying of God's word to serve tables. What I believe is going on in Acts chapter 6 is every day the church of Jerusalem was setting up a banquet for the, the needy, you might say, for the less fortunate. That the money coming into the church was going directly to people in a variety of ways, including feeding them. <laughs> because you know what? It's really hard to hear truth when your stomach is empty. It's really hard to draw closer to God when you are concerned about your next meal. And Christ, on more than one occasion, fed the masses. On Christ, on more than one occasion, dealt with the physical needs of people before addressing the spiritual needs. And I believe if the church wants to reflect Christ, we need to do the same. Now, we do not have a daily meal program for the community. Other ministries do. I'm not, I'm not opposed to it. I think it's a great thing. God has not called our church to that or set us up for that kind of daily cost. There are other ways we give back to the community to address their physical needs. But at this point, this church in Jerusalem is thousands of members strong. Thousands. 5,000 being saved here, 3,000 saved here. There's plenty of people in this church who can fund a daily, you might say, food hall for whoever needs the food to come in. And the apostle Peter and the others said, we can't spend time serving the tables. It has to be done. Tables got to be served. They got to be clean. Got to be set up for the next day. I get it. It can't be us. We're focusing on the teaching. But the early church did not just teach, take money and say, well, we got to pay the pastors a bunch of money so we don't lose them so they can teach us all of their knowledge. No, they took the money and then purchased to give back out to the community. First and foremost, the community of believers in the church. Secondly, the community outside the church. Essentially, the finances of the church are not to be received and kept and stored and saved. They are to be received and then redistributed. We have a savings account here at Meriden Hills. Our savings account historically over the last 10 years has been in the hopes that we would get a building someday. We are outgrowing this building. You can see now some of you struggled finding seats. And we have a lot of folks who are sick, traveling, that are not here today. And so we have talked about this, and we plan at this point now to basically open up the walls. And instead of finding a new building, just stay here and break down walls and, and do with what God has given us already. We can't do that till we move the school, and we're still looking to move the school. Once the school moves, then the walls come down, and we will open up this room. And so we have a savings account in the knowledge that someday we will have to do some work here. We do not have a savings account of 500000 for a rainy day. Like, what kind of rainy day needs half a million dollars? We don't have a savings account of, well, we might need to someday do something, what? I don't know, but maybe something. Well, what are you talking about? Most of our money, if you look at our finances, it is very fluid. And every quarter, we go over our finances, profit and loss, and we give to our people what has come in and what has, gotten, what has come out. And you'll find that it's pretty close, right, Sam? Pretty close to what has come in goes out. We don't keep much of it. And you also can see what our pastoral staff has paid, and we don't just give ourselves random raises, because my heart is the heart of Christ. I know that when you give, you are not giving to me. I know that. You are giving to them, whoever them are. 
but he can't go to them if it stays with me. He can't go to them if it stays with us. So our church gives, and boy, you give generously. This church is so generous in your giving. And that is why some people say, how can you do what you do? We fed every single teacher and support staff of the Meriden Public Schools. I think it was like 1,500 people we fed lunch in a week, in one week. How can you feed them lunch for free? Because our church is generous. We had an event at the beginning of the school year. We gave out hundreds of brand new shoes for free to hundreds of kids. And you should see these. You should have saw these kids coming in. One kid told me, I, don't own, I only own one pair of Crocs, he says. That's all he owned. He was so excited. To, and these shoes were like $150 plus shoes. I didn't pay that much for them. Don't worry. I, I was able to get a big discount on a lot of these shoes. I'm not buying $150 shoes, okay? I'm able to get big discounts on a lot of stuff because I know people and I, and I know things and I can do these things. But this kid, he, he, was, he took off his shoes, put back on his Crocs, and was carrying his shoes. He didn't want to get them dirty. And so we do that stuff like every month we're doing that, and people are saying, how can you afford that? All I can say is our church is generous because our heart is the heart of the first century church. We don't give to keep. We give to give. Now, having said that, 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, and in these verses, is dealing with some folks who are being disorderly. What are they doing? They are taking from within the church and abusing the generosity of the church, and the Apostle Paul is calling out their abuse. I am not here to claim that anyone in this church is doing that. I'm not preaching this text because I think anyone in this church is doing that. Please do not assume that I'm preaching at you or to you today. That is why I'm an expository preacher. I preach through books because if the truth is there, I will preach it. If the Holy Spirit wants to convict your heart, that is between you and him. Please do not include me in that. I am not preaching at you today. I am preaching this text because we are in this text. And I'm going to preach it in its honesty as it's intended to be preached. The overall idea of this text is the Apostle Paul was concerned that the church in Thessalonica, who was so very generous, and it seemed like the church in Jerusalem, was having some kind of daily food giving or at least weekly, but there were people, if you read the text, that were coming and eating and not working. Not only not working, they didn't have jobs, they didn't want a job, they didn't want to have any income. They were, you might say, leeching off of the generosity of the church, but to make it worse, they were gossiping within the church. So, you know, idle hands make for loose tongues, right? And so these folks are joining the church because of what they can get out of the church. And then in all of the generosity of the church, all they're doing is causing chaos by the things that they say. Well, that was a bad meal. Well, it was free, but it was still bad. Well, I mean, man, why is everyone so cruel here? Well, maybe it's because they just served three meals to 5,000 people. Yeah, but they didn't say hello to me. Well, you know, I'm sorry about that. And so these people are just upset, these people are, are trash-talking. These people are gossiping while essentially just using and abusing the generosity of the church. That is the text of 2 Thessalonians chapter 3. Now, I always try to ask myself when I'm reading through the Bible, how can the scripture apply to Meriden Hills? I do not see the application in this text for our church as it currently stands. 
I'm not saying we may never get here. I'm not saying that as God continues to grow Marion Hills, and he is, I'm not saying we may never have some kind of food hall or, or food program where this might actually be a, pro, a problem in its, in its text, textual uh, sincerity here that people are coming to only take and then causing problems while they're here. We're not here. I don't believe this church is in this condition, and I wanted to take other truths from this text and preach the truths that do apply to us while, again, still remaining true to the actual context itself. And so the title is Helping Hands because what I see here is a church in Thessalonica that is helping the community, helping their church community and helping the community surrounding them, and people are taking advantage of their helping. But I see three things, gracious leaders, committed servants, and entitled members. Let's start with gracious leaders. So I'm going to read here a few more verses before I continue on. Verse 7, for yourselves know how you ought to follow, for we behave not ourselves disorderly among you. Neither did we eat any man's bread for naught, but wrought with labor and travail night and day that we might not be chargeable to any of you. Not because we have not power, but to make ourselves an example or example unto you to follow us. He says, when we were with you, we could have just preached only, not worked, and expected you to feed us and take care of us because that's within our power. Within the power of a, of a pastor and spiritual leader, the church should give double honor to the spiritual leaders of the church, including caring for their needs. The Apostle Paul said, when we were there, we didn't take any money from you because we wanted to set an example of how it should look among you. You're not here to serve to get. You're here to serve to give. Now, I'm not bivocational in its strictest sense. I don't have a job outside the ministry. This church does pay my payroll. But I am bivocational in the sense where I also work for the school. I do have two jobs. I actually have more than two, but aside from that, I've got two jobs. I work for the school and the church, and they pay for my payroll. But I do the work for the pay. The Apostle Paul said, when I was there, I taught, I mentored, I preached, and I worked. He was a tent maker, and you didn't pay me anything. Why? Because I want to set an example that you can follow when I leave. The Apostle Paul says, I'm a leader that recognizes you're watching. And I wanted you to be able to mimic what you saw. Let's keep going. We're going to jump now to uh, verse number 11. For we hear that there are some which walk among you disorderly. There's that word disorderly again. Working not at all, but are busy bodies. That word busy body again, saying things, gossiping, getting involved in other people's business, not minding your own. Why? Because they have nothing else to do. Why? Because all their needs are cared for by the church, and then they don't do anything on their own to care for their own needs, so they just get in everyone else's business. Now them that are such, we command and exhort by our Lord Jesus Christ that with quietness they work and eat their own bread. If they're able to care for themselves, they should care for themselves. But ye, brethren, be not weary in well-doing. There's a famous verse right there. Interesting how a lot of the famous verses we know, we don't know the context in them. We don't know the verses surrounding them. We just pull one verse out and use it however we want. That verse, be not weary in well-doing, right here in the middle of this text dealing with serving others but not letting them abuse your generosity. And if any man obey not our word by this epistle, note that man, have no company with him that he may be ashamed. Yet count him not as an enemy, but admonish him as a brother. A lot of times Christians, when they break ties, man, they really break ties. They'll break bones and teeth when they break ties. Like, don't ever come back here ever again. It's over. I never want to see your face. You're dead to me. Isn't it funny how we Christians who preach 
and teach and supposedly live love are often the cruelest when it comes to separation. We could be so, so hurtful in the way we end things. I learned a long time ago that first impressions go a long way. You know what else goes a long way? Last impressions go a long way. I learned that how you first meet someone sets up your relationship with them going forward. How you last meet with them reflects how they're going to see you and everything you taught and did as they move forward from you. You can invest in someone for five years, but on the way out, if you say, you know what, you're dead to me. I never want to see you again. I hate your guts. Everything you taught them five years, they'll not care about. All that investment will be lost. In fact, it is possible they will do the opposite of what you said just because of how you hurt them. They will go the opposite of where you're directed because of how you hurt them. And those five years will not only be lost, they will have been not only wasted, they will have been doing the opposite for this person for the rest of their life because they will not want to hear or follow any advice that you gave them. Just because someone is leaving your life doesn't mean you need to to be cruel to them on their exit. It is okay to let people go in grace. It is expected that a Christian is gracious at all points in our relationships, the beginning, the middle, and yes, even the end. Admonish them, but as a brother. Even these folks who are abusing the generosity of this church, these folks who are taking advantage of other people who are working hard, who have enough to care for their own families and give to others, someone else says, oh, I don't need to care for my family. You'll care for my family. You'll feed my kids. You'll feed us, right? Even these people who are now gossiping about the generosity of the church, as they're asked to stop, they are still treated with grace and love in that process. If only we as Christians could master that talent of showing grace at the end, not just the beginning. And now, the message. Gracious leaders, letter A. We shouldn't change truth. Truth should change us. Going back to verse 6, we command you, brethren, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that ye withdraw yourselves from every brother that walketh disorderly. Verse 7, for yourselves know how you ought to follow us. Hey, you know the truth. You know what it should look like. You know that you should be generous, but not wasteful. Do not waste your generosity on those who are enabled through your generosity. You know the truth, now follow it. Don't change the truth so as to not offend those living in sin, those living in selfishness, those living in pride. So many churches, you know who they focus on? They focus on the loudest, and the loudest are usually the most prideful, and the most prideful are usually the most selfish, and the most selfish are usually the most destructive. So here we have church leaders focusing on the ones doing the most damage, trying to appease them. It's like in a family. You got three kids. And one child's always screaming, so you always give them a lollipop. You always give them ice cream. You always give them the phone, the tablet, because they're always screaming. And the other two kids silently suffer, wondering, what is this all about? Our sibling gets all the attention. Our sibling's the worst. Like, everyone knows that. Our sibling is the one destroying this family. And it seems like our parents only care about that sibling. Parents, I'm not saying you don't help that child, but spoiling them doesn't help them. 
and ignoring the others doesn't help anyone. And there's a lot of churches that act just like that. They spoil the loudest, the proudest, the, the, the most selfish, the most destructive. They spoil them. And those doing what's right eventually just leave. You know what happens? The church is eventually only full of prideful, spoiled, self-destructive people. Because those are the ones the pastor focused on. And all the good ones left. <laughs> the Apostle Paul says, don't do it. <laughs> Focus on truth and let truth change them. Do not change truth to appease them. Now, this is a basic truth that really isn't really that deep. It's the truth of if you want something, work for it. Like, don't just always take, 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 and never give in return. That's the basic truth in this text. It's not even like a moral truth that we're talking about. It's just a truth of, of how life should work, that you should work to receive. But don't change that truth to appease the lazy, to enable the selfish. Let her be. Don't follow leaders who serve. Follow servants who lead. I love this one. In verse uh, number seven, you know how you ought to follow, for we behave not ourselves disorderly among you. Verse nine, not because we have not power, but to make ourselves an example unto you to follow us. You say, Pastor us, leaders who serve, servants who lead, like, come on, this is just semantics here. It's the same thing flipped around. What's the difference? The difference is the priority. For some, the priority is I'm going to lead. I am a leader. That's what I do. I will never follow anyone. I will always lead. That's what God's called me to. That's my personality. That's my strength. I'm a leader. And if I have to serve to be a leader, okay, fine, I'll serve too. But the priority is leadership. The priority for them is being in charge. The priority for them is being top dog, on top. King of the mountain. Since they were young, no one else won king of the mountain. If they played against them, they always won king of the mountain. They had to be on top. You go into their house, it was their toys you're playing with, if you got to play with them, and they chose what games. They went to your house, it was still them choosing what games, and they brought their toys, and you saw how to play with their toys. They were always in charge. They wanted to be in charge. And if they had to serve to stay in charge, then they would demean themselves to serve to stay in charge. That's a leader who serves. And this world is full of leaders who are willing to serve to stay as a leader. I am telling you, stay away from those people. Do not follow those people. Their service to you is a form of manipulation. You say, how do you know that? Because when you exit that relationship, they will say things like, how could you do this to me after all I've done for you? Well, well, so you were serving me to get something from me? You were serving me to keep me? You were serving me to manipulate me? That's not what they say, but that's what they're saying. It's, pretty, it's more obvious on your way out by the things they say and how they treat you that their service was never really out of love. It was always about what they could get you to do for them. They're leaders who serve. You want to find a servant who's willing to lead. The kind of person that says, you know what, look, I'm a servant first. Always people first. Always God first. Always every time. But if someone's got to lead, then I'll volunteer only because someone's got to lead. But if I'm going to do so, I'm going to do so as a servant. If I'm going to lead, I'm going to lead by serving you and making you a priority. How do you know these kinds of people? Because when you exit that relationship, they say, I wish you the best. Brother, sister, I truly, truly pray that God brings someone else in your life that will love you like I love you. It's not about me. I'll be fine. There's other people I can serve. I pray God will bring someone else that can serve you. 
Unfortunately, we don't often see it until the end. True wisdom is seeing the difference between the two in the middle, not at the end. Recognizing the leader who prioritizes leadership and serves out of manipulation from the servant who prioritizes service and leads because God has asked them to. Follow that kind of person, a servant leader, not a leader servant, and be that kind of person. Prioritize service. That's who Christ was. Letter C. The life of a leader is a lesson to the follower. Apostle Paul says, I know you're watching us. We didn't mind you watching us. We worked and were transparent so you could learn what you saw. You should be very, very concerned of any leader who tries to hide their life from you. A leader's life is designed to be a lesson. It's designed that way. So if they are trying to hide that lesson from you, it must be a lesson they don't want you to see. Parents, you should not be trying to hide your life from your children. You should want them to see every part that is within reason so they can learn the lesson. And if you don't, then you must know that you have a bad lesson to show. Change the lesson and then show it. At the workplace, here in the church, why are you trying to hide your life? There must be a reason. Well, I'm just a private person. I'm an introvert. I get that. I'm not saying you need to lay out everything that you do at home for everyone. What I am saying is God wants others to learn through your life, and especially if you're a leader. And if you're not happy with what they might learn, there's an answer to that. Fix it. Change it. So you can confidently let others watch your life and learn valuable lessons from it as the Apostle Paul says here. Gracious leaders, number two, committed servants, letter A. You become who you follow. The Apostle Paul says to them, follow us. Why? So you could do what we did. That was the goal. The goal was not so that the Apostle Paul would impress the church with how awesome he was, and they would you know, clap their hands every time he walked by and bow down as he sat down and stand up when he sat and sit down. You know, whatever, it doesn't matter. That wasn't what was going on. The Apostle Paul was serving them to create servants. The Apostle Paul had Christ imprinted on him and was trying to pass on not an imprint of himself, but an imprint of Christ Pass that on to others. The Apostle Paul was not trying to pass on the best of himself to someone else. He was trying to pass on all of Christ to someone else. And committed servants understand that you are who you follow. And if you are following someone where Christ is not evident in their life, then the best you can hope for is the best of them. Now, the best of any human is still a loss. The chances are you'll get the worst of them, by the way, not the best of them. The best you can hope for is the best of them. You probably won't get that. When you follow someone who reflects Christ, now you can hope for Christ in you. The Apostle Paul was a leader who understood that, and this church also understood that. You are who you follow. Now, the adults in this room, not so much. There is still an impact. There is still influence in your life as an adult, but not nearly as much as your kids. Your kids are who they follow. Who 
are you placing as leaders over the life of your kids? Look at their leaders, and don't be shocked when your children become those leaders. Don't be shocked when your child has a coach or a teacher. You don't like that coach, but you love the sport. But you let your child play the sport under that coach. Don't be shocked when that child becomes that coach. Your child has to learn. You understand that. You place them in the school under a teacher. Don't be shocked when your child becomes that teacher. Starts mimicking some of the mannerisms, mimicking some of the behavior patterns of that teacher. Some of the character qualities. You are who you follow. Children are like a clean slate, easily written on. Your slate is much more chaotic than a child's. It's hard for someone to find space on your slate to write on, so you're not as impacted as others. A child, all kinds of empty space. And the leaders they follow will be writing much on their slate. You as the adult get to choose what kind of leaders you place them under. Choose wisely. Letter B. So we're talking about committed servants. Letter A. You become who you follow. Letter B. We all must rest from work, but we not, must not rest from right. Let's go to that famous verse now, verse 13. But ye, brethren, be not weary in well-doing. That verse is not talking about don't be tired from doing a lot. You can't force that on someone. You can't force someone to not be physically tired. You can't force them to not be exhausted after a long day of work. That is not what the Apostle Paul is saying. He's saying be not weary in well-doing, which is what I'm saying up on the screen here. We all must rest from physical labor. You, the Bible gives you a command uh, to, to take some time. It's called the Sabbath day. Now, are we as a church required to take every Saturday off? No, I do not believe so, but I believe God has set up a pattern that we should be taking some time off every week to rest. That's how God designed our bodies. We need rest. By the way, even in their perfect state, Adam and Eve, they were given the seventh day of rest. So if you think, well, in heaven we'll be perfect, we'll never have to rest, I think you need to think again. Even in our perfection, we are not God, and we will still need rest. How much more when we are imperfect, making imperfect choices, with the chaos and curse of sin in our bodies? How much more rest do we need? This verse is not saying never rest, never stop. That's not what it's saying. It's saying never stop doing right. What does that mean? Okay, the context again. This verse is very important, right? A lot of people use it, have it on their wall. They have it memorized. It's on a calendar. It's on a picture somewhere. But in the context, this church was generously giving food and, giving, and having outreach programs for the community. People were taking advantage of it, abusing it, and then gossiping about the leaders through the chaos. What do you think a lot of churches would start doing? You know what? Forget it. No more food programs. No more giveaways. No more outreach programs. We're done. Why? Because when we do it, they don't appreciate it. When we give it, they think the food stinks. They talk bad about us behind our backs. Like, why would we keep serving these people who don't appreciate it? The Apostle Paul is warning them, don't become that. This last December, we had our annual toy drive. For those who have been in our church, you know what it is. It's not just giving away toys. We redecorate the upstairs, make it like a winter toy shop. We have people dressed up in outfits. Kids come in, they get bags of candy and toys and gifts, and they get to pick one big gift on their way out. We have possibilities for pictures, and they have little animals and rabbits and things. It's, it's a really great event. And we, we did this for like 100, and I think it was 50 or 60 kids that came through this last time. No, no, I'm sorry. It was like 
think it was two, over, it was 200, it was like 250. That was the problem. In the previous years, we had like 110, 120. This year was like double that. And so we weren't prepared for it. At last minute, I went out and bought a bunch of gifts, like hundred, uh, over 100 gifts that I had to get last minute because I wasn't prepared that amount. And I um, had, was, was there with the team. We were up there serving and we were giving gifts and the kids were smiling and loving it and they were so excited. And one mom on her way out, one, only one, as she's walking out, wasn't talking to me. I don't know if she knew who I was. She was walking out and said to her friend, this was way better last year. It's all right. I smiled, and I didn't worry about it. There was plenty of other kids that were happy. Whatever her and her kids' problem was, I didn't, wasn't overly concerned. My point is, that stuff happens. And you know it's easy? It's easy, right? Well, then forget that. Like, let's not do it again. That'll show them. That's exactly what this verse is saying, to not do. Don't stop doing right just because others abuse it. Instead, adjust the rules. Keep doing right and set up a standard. Set up some rules. Okay, you want to keep eating at this function? Great. Either you have to be at a place where you cannot work, handicapped, something like that, or um, maybe you've got too many kids where you can't get a job, and you know, you're, what, you're at this time in this culture, right, a widow, she couldn't get a job, great. But if some guy, 23, walks in and says, hey, what's for dinner today? The Apostle Paul saying, maybe that guy you should tell, get a job. <laughs> set up some rules. It's not stop doing right. It's have standards so that the people who really need it keep getting it. Don't stop altogether because of a few bad apples. Separate them, eliminate them, and keep giving to those who sincerely have a need. Do not be weary in well-doing. It's okay to be tired from work. It's not okay to be tired from doing what's right. Number three. Entitled members, and here we are, the actual, you might say, truth of this whole text. I only stuck essentially in one point, number three, because again, as I said earlier, I think this church isn't dealing with this problem right now. So I was giving you some other truths in this text that could apply to you, but here we are, number three, letter A, the church was not designed to take, but to give. Members in this church are coming disorderly, and just wanting to receive, to receive, to receive, to take, to take, to take. I've dealt with that in my introduction. I'm not going to go too much further now. But the church leadership were not designed to take but to give. And the church members are not designed to take but to give. Does that mean we never take? Obviously, I take a payroll. And obviously, there's things that you take from this church. I'm not saying we never take from each other. But we're not designed to show up every Sunday to say, what can I have? We're designed to say, what can I give? That's how God designed us. There will be moments of need. Be gracious in accepting it. It is prideful to refuse the gracious gift that God offers you through one of his children. Don't be prideful. If one of God's people wants to be a blessing to you, humble yourselves and be gracious in receiving it. It's okay. The problem is not receiving the gracious sacrifices of others on occasion. The problem is demanding it every day. Demanding it every week. Thinking that you have a right to it. That's the issue. And there's people in this church who believe themselves to have a right to your stuff. To your money. To your food. It was their right. 
not going to get into equality and equity today. That's not the point, really, that I want to talk about today. But that's a human condition problem. And a lot of people have different beliefs regarding that. And essentially, there's people in this church who said, I have a right to your stuff. And the Apostle Paul said, no, you don't. You have a right to get a job and to get your own stuff. The Apostle Paul is not eliminating the need of some. And I already talked about that. There are some who truly need, and we should be the first volunteers to give, not the last, the first. God's church should be the first to give to those truly in need. But those who are just taking advantage of generosity need to be confronted, not enabled. Letter B. Those who refuse to contribute but demand contribution cannot be enabled. They in no way want to give to God's kingdom, but only expect always to be given from God's kingdom. Don't enable them. It's so easy for the heart, the compassionate heart of a Christian, just to always give to everyone. Sometimes you're doing more harm than good. Sometimes there's someone who really could be making better choices and take care of themselves, but why would they? Because you keep taking care of them. Sometimes, parents, you need to recognize your 28-year-old is not 15 anymore. Sometimes, parents, you need to recognize your 22-year-old is not 16 anymore. I'm not saying that they can't enjoy a meal at your house or even, you know, rent out a room out of your house. I'm not saying that. I'm saying at some point your child needs to recognize they can take care of themselves. And you as a parent are only enabling them if you do not allow it. And so parents, just like you treat your children, allow them, sometimes even force them towards self-care, self-support. We as a church are not here to enable those who would never work. We are here to provide for those who truly need. And then let her see, and we're done. A lack of purpose often leads to a loose tongue. Because this church was enabling lazy people who could work but didn't work, and because they had the energy and the health to do something, but everything was provided for them, they chose to do something with their mouth. And they were busybodies. And by the way, it doesn't just say women. I think we got men and women going on here getting involved in other people's business and talking about other people because all they could do, all they had to do all day was eat and gossip. And they showed up the next day for more food and more gossip. And this church, in their desire to give to those who truly needed, weren't paying attention to those taking advantage and essentially destroying the heart of that church because a lack of purpose leads to a loose tongue. And these people had no purpose in life. They weren't going anywhere. They weren't doing anything. These adults were being cared for like they were infants. And so they acted like it in what they said. We'll end with this. A church who enables pride is going to elevate pride. And pride comes before a fall. And if we as a church, in our desire to help people, help people who don't need to be helped, past the point of what's helpful to them, we are only going to infuse pride into them, selfishness. And us helping them might be the very cause of our own destruction. Because we enable them to pride, and they don't go anywhere. Why would they? They got everything they need here. 
and their pride destroys this ministry. Leadership is hard because leadership sometimes has to call these people out. The Apostle Paul says, call them out, but like brothers. Just because they're doing wrong doesn't mean they're going to hell. It doesn't mean they're not saved. They can still be Christians and make some bad choices because you're enabling their bad choices. Call out their bad choices without calling them to hell, without cursing them, without condemning them to hell. Call out their bad choices. So Christians, we can call people out without condemning them. Remember, be gracious when you first meet, be gracious throughout the relationship, and be gracious at the end. So that if they do walk away, or if you walk away, you don't lose all of that investment in their life throughout the years. Let's pray.